Hello and welcome to Entrepreneur Talks, LSE Entrepreneur's weekly podcast series. We talk to successful entrepreneurs and CEOs to extract strategies and tools to help you on the way to greatness. This week, we have Michael Solana, Vice President of Founders Fund, a Silicon Valley-based venture capital with an impressive portfolio of companies such as Airbnb, Facebook, and Spotify. Founded by the legendary Silicon Valley investor Peter Thiel, the company invests in smart people solving difficult problems. Michael Solana has his own podcast, Anatomy of Next, which focuses on what the future holds for humanity. Listen in on Michael's ideas and thoughts and what it means to be a great entrepreneur. Michael, I just want to start out by saying thank you that you came here. And uh, you had a very unique career path. Could you maybe take us through your career path until you ended up to the fa- in the Founders Fund? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Where to begin? I was born in New Jersey. No, I'm joking. Um, so uh, I was in New York City. I was working as an editor for nonfiction uh, called Penguin Books. Or I guess that's, that's, that's everywhere, I guess. Um, and uh, sort of like shitty job. Didn't love it. Just wanted to be a writer. It's the only reason I was there. Kind of wanted to this vision of kind of like Trojan horsing my way into the publishing industry and if I had a job there I thought I would get published and whatnot uh, but I was working in editorial so I my job was to find new projects to work on and uh, I got in the habit of just talking reaching out to writers whose stuff that I liked um, back then I was uh, I guess you would say like pretty libertarian so I was following all of these like libertarian blogs and um, one of the pieces that was published on one of these blogs was this article by Peter Thiel called Education of a Libertarian. And in it, he talked about um, building these politically autonomous cities in the middle of the ocean. It was called the Sea Setting Institute. It was a nonprofit of his, uh, which I thought was just like really cool. It was super anarchist and like punk rock, and that was the kind of stuff that I was, it was 10 years ago. I was exactly what I was into. Um, so I reached out to them, the nonprofit, and I was like, hey, I'm a writer, not someone who can build a seastead, but I can write for you. I can, like, for free, I'll just write your Wikipedia page or whatever. Um, and I also reached out to him and just was like, hey, I liked your piece. Thanks for writing it. I didn't even know that people did stuff like this. He was talking about investing in technology companies and science more broadly. I genuinely had no idea that was a job. I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't even know what the technology industry was. I liked technology. I mean, I watched Star Trek, but I didn't know what the technology industry was. Um, so both of them responded. The Seasteading Institute first, they were like, yes, we want you to write for us for free. We also want you to build meetup groups for us for free in New York. And I was like, cool, I'll do that. I want to meet some anarchists. Um, Peter also responded. Uh, and by the time he responded, I had the job at Seasteading Institute, so we had like, something to talk about. Um, so this is a long story. I'm gonna, but I'll, I guess long story short, um, we talked for a minute. He showed up to my first meetup group. Uh, we became friends. Fast forward a handful of years, he wanted me to work on a project with him uh, at Stanford. He was going to teach a class called CS183. This is uh, a class that... Uh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, he wanted me to come on and work on a, a class called CS183. Uh, this was the class that would eventually become his book, Zero to One. Um, and it was kind of an editorial thing. And also, second part was he wanted me to throw our first summit 
our first technology summit. Didn't know what it was, why it was, what it would look like, who we would invite. He was just like, do it. We, we need someone to do it. Um, and so those are the two first things that I worked on. Um, and my role sort of evolved from there. Was that first summit the F50 summit? Or yeah, was that, okay. F50. So the idea was we would bring a bunch of technologists and scientists and entrepreneurs together in one spot and we would just have a conversation about the future. Um, super unstructured. It was not going to be this tech event with lots of panels and talks. This is none of those actually. The idea was just like to bring people together and it'll be in a remote location so they can't leave and they can't hang out with other people and there'll be alcohol and food and that's it and they will just hang out and talk and maybe good things will happen um, and a lot of good things have happened. So it ended up being a huge success and that was, wow, that was like eight years ago. Seven years ago, I would say. Okay, so I know that at that first event, I think there were like Taylor Wilson, who bought, who I think he built the first nuclear fusion at age 14 or something. Taylor Wilson is the youngest person ever to achieve nuclear fusion, mm -hmm. uh, but not sustainable. No one can do that. Um, you can create these fusion reactions that are super unsustainable and like fizzle out. So he was, I think, 14 when he did that in his basement. So he was, yeah, he was like one of the people that we invited um, to this event, but also lots of entrepreneurs and things. And, and at this point, I mean, it's, I never wanted it to be filled with people who are already famous and rich. I wanted it to be filled with people who one day we're going to be able to build things. One day we're going to be, able, be building things um, that were super exciting. Not, not people who had already kind of done it. Maybe a couple of those people, um, but, but not mostly those people. And like with all these like great entrepreneurial minds, like these genius people, like is there any like common trait that you see with every entrepreneur? If there's one trait that you can point your finger to and say, I think that's it? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's the trait that makes people successful. I know that all entrepreneurs have it. Uh, and this is weird and pretty esoteric, and some of you might not agree. Um, it's, like, very weird. But I, I think that um, all of the really great entrepreneurs believe that new things can be built. And I think, weirdly, a lot of people don't believe that. They think that things are iterations on things that have already been built. They think that... Um, like original ideas don't exist. Um, they think they kind of are suspicious of people who think they have new ideas. You know, who are you to think that you have a new idea, a new way of doing things? Um, yeah, but entrepreneurs really believe that 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 they do, that you can, that new things ha can exist. So they are more like invention focused rather than like building on existing structures. You mean? Or? I mean, they are, but the first thing is you have to actually believe it's possible. Okay. You have to actually believe that that everything around you has been invented, that there are literally new things that are important and meaningful. Um, and it's like a, there's like a hopefulness about them. There are not many, there are some pessimistic entrepreneurs, but they tend to be, they tend to track a little more optimistic. Okay, so in the Founders Fund. Should we fund, close this by the way? Is it too loud? It is kind of loud, isn't it? Yeah, thanks. Um, and, and within the Founders Fund, like what is the organizational culture like? What kind of people does the fund consist of? Mm. Uh, so it, I guess the early days, Founders Fund was always uh, mostly ex-entrepreneurs um, or people with technical backgrounds. Now it's mostly that um, and then a few others. Uh, okay. That's at the sort of investment level. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's people who have done it. Are, are ten, tend to be the people who, who we hire. Do you also have people who are not really, um, you know, didn't graduate from top like uh, tech universities or something? They don't have, they, they don't come from a tech background, but rather like, you know, business management or something? 
Yeah, we have a kind of mix at Founders Fund. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who went to Stanford because Peter went to Stanford, and that's where a lot of his recruiting happens. Mm. Um, but there are also, we've had a couple of dropouts. Um, those dropouts dropped out to work on companies, so. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, and uh, can you just give us like a taste of what the Silicon Valley vibe is at the moment? Um, yeah, it's, so when I moved out, I moved out seven years ago and it was exciting and everyone was building the next huge thing um, in business, but then also there were all of these exciting radical technology narratives. People were obsessed with artificial intelligence and virtual reality, um, nanotechnology, bio had just, it was just, people were just starting to talk about the bio stuff. Um, I think, you know, a few things have been built, the huge things, I mean, in that time, like ride sharing, all of the sort of, uh, all the kind of like the Uber for whatever's have been built. Um, there have been a few huge science-based companies, but I think there's less, people in Silicon Valley are less married to the idea that they are the center of the technology world. And back then, they didn't think that there wasn't anything else elsewhere. They just didn't think about anywhere else at all because it was so exciting to be there. It was like everyone that you talked to was working on exciting stuff. There was so much money there. You could just build any, if you had a good idea, you could build it. Um, culturally, I think America broadly and Silicon Valley in particular um, were always super, super, super open to um, just trying stuff. And if you fail, it's fine, do it again. Here's more money, just keep going. Um, Now, I, I don't know, I think, uh, I think that the cost of living there is so exorbitant. Um, maybe that one thing alone is, is what's kind of soured the mood, that it's like, if you were to start a company today, would it make sense to start it there? And many people think it does still make sense because there's so much incredible talent there. But at this point, it's like, there's a calculus to it. It's, it's not a no-brainer. It's like, yeah, there are lots of smart people there, but the cost of operating is insane. Maybe the highest, certainly the highest in America, maybe the highest in the Western world. Um, so yeah, I mean, where's the next company going to be? It's no longer certainly going to be there. And so I think, yeah, the culture has changed a little bit to accommodate that fact, this belief that, that we're not necessarily uh, the best anymore. Okay, so I know that Silicon Valley has like insane knowledge and there's so many tech genius people there. If there's like an entrepreneur out there that is not really has not really decided in what field he wants to specialize in, what is what do you reckon is the next big industry that people should break into? Well, I would say you're not an entrepreneur until you've built a company. Um, okay. So at that point, you would have some specialty in something. I think this idea of wanting to just be an entrepreneur is um, it's sort of like a style. You know, you say, I want to be, a, when I was younger, I want to be a writer. People would, I was surrounded by people in Brooklyn who were like, I want to be a writer. And they weren't writing anything. Um, I think that you're seeing something similar right now in entrepreneurship. And you've seen it for years. I've seen it since I moved to Silicon Valley. People would be like, I'm an entrepreneur. And we have all these kind of, um, some people call them like wantrepreneurs. They're people who show up at all of the, all of the, the, what are they called? Like the Forbes 30 under 30 or whatever. And they go and they're on panels and they're talking to people who are on panels but they're not actually building anything. Um, 
yeah, so first of all, don't be that person. Um, I would say find something that you're really excited about, no matter what it is, and uh, then try and meet people who are working on that thing. Not entrepreneurship for entrepreneurship's sake, but um, if it's a certain technology or kind of idea, an approach to something, um, yeah, just reach out to people who are working on those things, always. And um, if that means that you're gonna end up instead of starting your own company, working at a company that's like 20 people strong, but they're really cool people, and you like the person running the company, that's, that's great, it's way better than starting a company that's gonna fail, potentially. Um, but if the thing that you wanna do, no one is doing, then maybe just do that. Um, I don't know, I guess, I don't know if that's probably not helpful, it's like easier said than done, but. What, what does um, the Founders Fund, what kind of ideas do, do they back? Like, what are they looking for? Uh, Founders Fund is agnostic on ideas at this point, um, stage and vertical agnostic basically. So we'll look at any company that we think is a good company, highly scalable uh, at any stage. Um, but in terms of the kind of things that people at Founders Fund have been excited about in the past, they tend to be, when you're looking for something that's highly scalable and has the potential to sort of alter the world in a meaningful way, those kinds of companies tend, more often than not, to come from the science and technology sort of advancement. Um, so we've looked at lots of things in, the, in, in that, in like sort of radical science and tech space. But we also look at increasingly at companies that are using technology that already exists to change the way things are currently done. Um, one really good example would be, well, there's a whole series of them that happen in the US. Uh, we've invested in companies that essentially take over aspects of the government. So um, or you could say assist the government. Uh, one would be SpaceX, obviously. Uh, Palantir would be another. Um, and then most recently, uh, it's a company called uh, Onderol. I don't know if anyone here knows about it, but you will. It's a really, really great uh, technology company, the first of its kind. Um, and uh, we're excited about it because you have a group of people who are doing something that they can't for a series of very complicated reasons, like, um, I can't, I mean, you're not allowed to, you're not culturally allowed to. So defense is this really, um, people in the Valley, Silicon Valley skews very, very, very left politically. Um, and I think actually it's more like you have a really, really, really loud minority of very, very left-leaning people. Uh, and then everyone else is kind of like moderate to moderate left. Um, but the very, very far left people hate the military and don't want the uh, technology companies like Google to work with military at all. So there's this opening for companies that are like, actually, defense technology is important for all sorts of reasons, um, and we're gonna build it. And that's Palmer Luckey and uh, Trey Stevens right now uh, with Onderol. So it's like a, it's a strange company that people aren't gonna follow you into. We have sort of an edge in that space. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know, that's one. So out of, out of all those like crazy ideas that you have, is, is there any one idea that really like stuck with you and you were like, wow, this could actually change a lot? Um, well, I mean, when I first started, it was SpaceX. That was a long time ago. That, that was the one, like, that's why I wanted to move to Founders Fund. Um, back then, no one was talking about building rocket ships. That was seen as a joke. When Founders Fund made our first investment in SpaceX, we were literally laughed at by other VCs on stage. They would make jokes about us. Um, we were like the crazy people investing in rocket ships. Um, that's, you know, one of the best bets in venture capital in the last 10 years. Um, so that was the one that got me in. That was one I was super excited about. And, you know, that was because I grew up really being obsessed with Mars more broadly. And this was like, wow, 
our government can't do it. It refuses to do it. This maybe is the only chance that we have. Um, and uh, he, Elon, very wisely found a way towards this goal that makes money. Um, you know, he's mm -hmm. just every step of the way. He's found a, a way to make money uh, on the sort of path to getting to Mars. Um, I think a lot of people have heard about uh, the Elon Musk podcast with Joe Rogan. And uh, mm -hmm. he has a very fatalistic view on the future. Yeah. Whereas on your podcast, Anatomy of Next, you have a very positive outlook on the possibilities with like, you know, the advancement in technologies. How would you how would you say like, why does Elon have such a negative view about the future? I don't know why he has a negative view on the future. Um, I'm not even really sure. He, I'm not even really convinced he does. I know that he talks about it a lot. Um, I think that... I will say there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who talk about a scary future. For example, the robots are going to take your jobs. It's a weird thing to say that because on the one hand, you sound like you care. You're saying, I really care. And FYI, robots are going to take your jobs. Everyone should know that. You should be afraid of that. But on the other, these are people who are working on these things. So they're kind of saying like, we're working on the thing that's going to replace all labor in the world, and that's very lucrative. So in a strange way, they're peacocking their importance by pretending to care about this like scary thing. Um, one, I don't think that's true. I don't think the robots are going to take all of our jobs. Um, I think it's like way more complicated than that. I think it's sort of, that's been the case historically. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be the case moving forward. I think that there's an argument to be made in, in both directions. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just, like I said, I'm not really convinced that even the people who are doomsaying are earnestly doomsaying. Um, and then when you actually look at the technology, the question I found really interesting was like, okay, so in biotechnology, for example, in genetic engineering, um, we've all seen the anti-genetic engineering movies. You know, Jurassic Park is, awesome by the way it's an awesome movie um, but it's like scary no one wants to live in that world um, no one wants to live in the world of Gattaca no one wants to live in in any world actually that I can think of that's ever been produced by Hollywood that has to do with genetic engineering which is crazy because there are so many people working on it so you have to ask yourself a question it's like if this stuff is so obviously bad for the world why are there so many scientists steeped in it who are working on it and it's like turns out all you have to do is ask them and they're like, oh, because we could potentially end all disease, because we can make enough food for everybody in the entire world to eat, um, because like you can enhance yourself in all these really exciting ways coming like like eventually. I mean, that's 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 the hope. Maybe even I mean people are talking about ending the aging process, like really crazy sort of amazing stuff. Um, and so, yeah, there are dangers with some of this stuff because everything new is unknown to a certain degree, but there's also promise. And so I think it's important to keep in mind the utopian vision. I don't think that, I don't, I'm not the sort of like Pollyanna-ish utopianist. I'm pessimistic about a lot of things. But I think it's when looking at these different technologies important to, um, to weigh the, the potential pros with the potential cons. Uh, you know, uh, talking about stopping the aging process, Peter Thiel very famously said that death is a problem that can be solved. And that also brings... Uh, uh, to me to a book that's called Homo Deus by Yuval Harari where he basically talks that we humans will evolve evolve and we basically wind up, uh, end up being gods and we will like you know be able to manipulate our biology so much that we can enter a higher consciousness do you not think that there's one point where we just have to say okay you know this is technology is just going way too far and like you have to look back 
No. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but I would say, like, you know, what is the point? People are always like, what is the point? Don't play God. But people have been making those arguments forever. People made those arguments when we first started doing in vitro fertilization. And people made those arguments um, when we were making, growing too much food. Uh, famously, the UK, um, it was, this happened, actually, this is a UK thing. Uh, there were uh, Malthusians in the UK back when India was still a colony. There were these famines in India, and there were arguments here by the Malthusian, uh, the, Mal the Mal I don't know, if, are they Malthusians or Malthusiasts, Malthusians, uh, people who believe in the philosophy of Malthus. And they were like, we can't give food to the people who are starving, because if we give people food, um, they're just going to make more, they're going to have more kids, and then more people will be starving. Um, it's like these, you hear these kinds of ideas all the, all the time. Um, and there's this idea that like human intervention in these things that are perceived as, a, per, perceived as natural uh, is somehow um, really bad. The unnatural human is, is really bad. I don't believe that. I think that we're awesome. I think we're the only species capable of preserving life. I think that's really important if you care about life. I choose, that, I choose to care about life. That's a weird one. It's hard to like, philosophically prove that life is important. But let's just say that it is, and you can go and say that it's not, but I, I think that it is. If you think that, then humans are important. And if you think humans are important, then you have to do everything that you can to improve us in every way, keep us healthy, uh, and move us off of this planet so we can bring life with us into the universe. Is that why there are entrepreneurs trying to solve problems in the world, that we, the end goal is basically that we can reach this utopia? I don't think everyone thinks of it that way. Um, I, think, I think most entrepreneurs tend to be pretty focused on their one problem, mm -hmm. actually. Um, Elon Musk is a rare other, he's like part entrepreneur, part philosopher, part, part like pop star at this point. Yeah. Um, but even he, like when it comes to Tesla or when it comes to SpaceX, is pretty relentlessly focused on the problem of building affordable electric cars or um, affordable reusable rocket ships or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, and then he plugs that into this larger vision that's exciting, but day to day, what he's focused on are, are those, those specific problems. I think the optimism stuff, like the the tech, the techno utopia type stuff, that was a really animating force in Silicon Valley for a very long time, um, because it reminded people why they were doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. I think right now, I think it will come back, but right now things are just really. I think globally people are just confused about what's happening and how they fit into the world. There's like this mass existential crisis happening. Um, yeah, so it's just a little bit, it's those stories are landing a little bit differently. I still have a lot of people, I mean, we have a huge following on the podcast, for example, and it's people who are really committed to this stuff, and they're young people, people who are engineering students or entrepreneurs right now who want to do something that's meaningful. Um, and I do believe that entrepreneurship is the way to do that. Do you, for yourself, do you have like a vision that what the future is going to look like? Like, what are the next great advancements that you're gonna that we can see in the next five years? Um, so, I mean, everyone at Founders Fund has a different version of this. So I'm not speaking for Founders Fund. Like, everyone has very strong opinions about this, and they all are pursuing those paths um, every day. I personally am obsessed with what's happening in genetic engineering. I think it's like really fascinating. George Church once said that um, molecular biology is the nanotechnology that actually works. You can basically build these tiny machines. If you can program cell, the cell to do whatever you want it to do, and you can, 
uh, we know that you can. It's just a matter of us finding out what every gene does. Uh, then you can build little robots that can build you know, for you whatever you want. Um, you can reprogram the body, but you can also build something, there's this concept of like biological factories, for example. Uh, you just seed Mars with life from afar. Um, you build things that make the environment more habitable for you, and there are a million other applications for this that people who are way smarter than me talk about all the time, just like Google it. It's really, really cool and exciting. Um, also, uh, I think Bitcoin's really exciting. I think everything that has to do with protecting people from um, intrusive corporations and governments is important right now uh, and will continue to be a huge deal. Um, I think the, the theme for a long time was uh, companies believed that, and governments, that privacy was sort of a thing of the past, that we were an increasingly open society and everyone was going to be okay with that. Not true. Um, I think technology that helps people stay private is, uh, and safe is, is going gonna, is gonna to be really important. So, I mean, you uh, were working with uh, seasteading on the idea of seasteading and yeah, Bitcoin briefly. and all these things. So are you thinking that we should be autonomous? Like there should not be like, you know, are you still like an anarchist or? No, I'm not anymore. So I, I actually, so I, I'm glad you asked that question. I don't want to give you guys the wrong idea. Mm -hmm. um, so the interesting thing about seasteading, uh, I mean, really awesome people who I met there. They were really, really cool people thinking about really cool stuff, but mostly what they were doing was thinking. It was like all anarchists, and this is the problem with libertarianism. I don't actually know if you guys have what the libertarian analog would be in the UK, but in the US, libertarians are completely politically marginalized and have always been. Um, they're highly principled, uh, super philosophical, want to talk to you all the time about their ideas, um, but they don't actually have any power and don't change anything ever. Um, and that's even more so for people who would self-describe or self-define themselves as anarchists, I would say. Uh, and I was at the Seasetting Institute, I mean, for literally long enough. I basically, I did one meetup group. I wrote for them, but then I did one meetup group. I met Peter. I think two meetup groups. I met Peter, and that was, I think, the end of it for me. Um, what's more exciting to me are, are people who, who are actually affecting change in the world and what was your original question it was about <laughs> i've forgotten myself actually. Well, are you an anarchist that not was an anarchist i would an say anarchist. i'm for people who want to make the world better for everybody so i okay i mean the high level goal is this idea of post-scarcity so um we want to live in a world where there's unlimited food energy water education health all these things for everybody how do you do that how do you live in that like star trek universe um that's the goal and I am for people who are for that goal, and I want to help people who are for that goal achieve that goal. Okay. So one of the things that you do is you direct the F50 symposium, right? Mm -hmm. So you get all these, I think, the 50 greatest technological minds together in one place. Well, 50 and great minds, not the greatest. 50 great minds. And uh, what, what's the purpose of, like, you trying to connect these people so that they can, like, bounce off their ideas so that something greater can come out of it? Or... Uh, yeah, I think there's just a lot of value to bringing people together to talk about um, sort of higher level abstract things, um, like what should the future be, rather than what is it, the present today, and uh, and I don't know, early on it was an experiment, I didn't know that there was a, a good reason, uh, these people were all really busy, I felt embarrassed even reaching out to them to say, like, come to this event that I'm throwing, um, but they got a lot of value out of it because the other people there were really good, and now people tend to, not tend, but often enough, people will kind of meet each other there. Businesses have been spun out because of it. People work together. People are hired there. Um, 
I th- I think there's just like actually a value that you could you could probably sit down and metric. There's probably like a dollar amount to that value, and then I just kind of feel like there's a lot of value to it when you're there and you're talking to people. You just you feel like it's good to get people together in person to talk about important things. So has like, I mean, you obviously talked to Peter Thiel, uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk maybe as well? Uh, no, I work with Peter, so I okay. talk to him all the time, but uh, not Elon. Okay, so talking to Peter, like, did that like it change your fundamental views on life somehow? Did it have any impact? Yeah, uh, no one has impacted my life more than Peter, probably. Um, I guess the most important thing that I learned from him was this idea that people are actually always looking to compete with each other, especially people they like, and that this is really, really unhealthy and dangerous for everyone involved. That, um, yeah, I guess that's th- that's the thing, to avoid competition, to actually always be relentlessly pursuing things that no one else is pursuing. and. Um, and to be aware of this mimetic desire that we all have to uh, look for cues on how to be and what to want from the people that we're close to, friends really. Uh, there's a philosophy, a philosopher, Rene Girard, who he introduced me to, who talks a lot about this, it's mimetic theory. Um, and I encourage all of you to look into it. I think it's really, really uh, an important way of looking at the world and it's an important impulse to avoid. Um, yeah, competing with other people is bad. But isn't it like, capitalism that we should compete to? No. Uh, what are the best companies? The best companies in the world right now are pretty much monopolies. They're companies that aren't competing with anybody. Who's competing with Amazon? I mean, well, I guess you could say in China there are competitors where Amazon is not allowed to compete, but no one competes with Amazon in the U.S. No one competes with Facebook. No one competes with Google. Um, and those companies are all they have tons of money. Everyone who works there is happy. Facebook is like, or Google, especially the Google campuses is like, is like a joke. It's like a utopian joke. It's like a parody of a utopian world. Um, I, they don't, don't compete. They're not competing. I think that's 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 the the real. I mean, Peter talks a lot about this in Zero to One, um, and I think that's sort of the lie that we tell ourselves about competition. That it's like this brutal uh, our capitalism. The capitalism is this brutal competition. And it's like it can be. The, the airlines are like that, but they have a razor thin margins. You don't want to be starting an airline right now. Um, it's a really, really bad business. You want to be starting something that no one else is working on, and you want to make sure that you're doing something that no one else can follow you into. So as an entrepreneur, you have to have like a disruptive vision, something completely new, something that has never been tried before? Uh, or a new way of doing something old that's better that is really hard, that is really hard to follow if you want to be building these kinds of companies, these like highly scalable technology companies, but you don't have to. You could be someone who just wants to start a restaurant or um, like a movie studio or an airline and maybe you just love airlines and that's fine, that's cool, but you're not going to be Google. Um, and working at the Founders Fund, I mean that must have been like a giant shift from Penguin to... Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like, how did, what did you learn from the Founders Fund? I mean you've been working there for seven years. How did the industry change? Um, yeah, so I think the, the main way the industry changed is that it's more open now to the rest of the world, sort of looking around and wondering what other people are doing, what they're thinking of. Certainly, I don't know if the whole industry is caught up, but certainly we at Founders Fund are looking everywhere. Um, that's the main, that's actually just it. That's the main way. There's, like an, there's just an openness right now. I think that people are looking around and thinking like, 
the next huge company might not be here. So we need to be paying attention to what's happening in the rest of the world. So as an entrepreneur, you have your business, you have a great idea. Like, do you know how, like how you can attract like venture capital, like, like founders funds? Like how do you find, how do you, how does founders fund find the people? Um, this is, there are a million ways. Every single entrepreneur has their own version of this story of how they found their first investor. Um, and I think that honestly, I mean, people get really frustrated about the lack of transparency into this process, but it's not like it's a secret, um, secret society or something. It's just, there is no one way of doing it. Uh, you need an intro to someone who's an investor and that's kind of like your first test as an entrepreneur. If you're the CEO of a company, your job is going to be selling that company to people. And so if you can't get an intro with someone willing to give you money, and if you can't convince that person to give you money, it's a really bad sign for your company. Um, that's the first thing, you need an intro. And the best way to do that is to find someone who knows someone uh, and convince them to make the intro for you or to meet them at an event like this and. And but honestly, like these events are kind of hard to talk to the person after. Um, you could try emails. You could try Twitter. I know people who've done it on Twitter. I know people have done it on Facebook. I know people have written really interesting essays, and then VCs reach out to them. Um, yeah, there are a million ways, but you have to just that you have to kind of figure out on your own. When you're reaching out to like the founders to like put together the F50 symposium, how do like what kind of things are you looking for? Um, someone who's done something. In, really remarkable in their life, built something or started something. Uh, someone who believes new things can be made and you can just go onto Twitter and kind of like get a feel for their philosophical worldview. I don't care about politics, I don't care about religion. You can have anything, any version of that is fine with me. But you have to really, really believe in technology. You have to think it's good and that people doing things with it to change the world are good. You'd be surprised how many people in the industry don't think that. Um, so I avoid them because I'm trying to build a community and the people who are there are gonna wanna have that in common, and that's how you, you build relationships, is based on values. So that's the one value that I, that I choose for. Uh, yeah, have done something incredible, believe in new things, wanna build those new things. Be maybe kind of enthusiastic, and then it's just fun, it's a fun environment. I, one thing I often heard like while, while you're talking about is like philosophy, a lot of focus on philosophy. So do you think that every entrepreneur has to have like a no. clear philosophy? No. Uh, that's I think about that a lot mm -hmm. um, but no the truth is you have to just have a really great idea uh, and relentlessly pursue it and work really hard it's like it's pretty much what you think it is um, yeah there's no there's no secret to it it's just hard to do it it's like with uh, you know Peter Thiel and Elon Musk being like you know from the PayPal mafia and all that stuff like it it kind of gives off the vibe that it's like an exclusive like boys club up there in Silicon Valley. So what 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 is the vibe? Do you have Well, those to, two like... people work together. So yeah, there's the whole PayPal mafia, mm -hmm. but they all work together and no one knew them when they worked together. They built that up. Mm -hmm. um, that's, anyone can do that. Any, any one of you can do that. You have to just, you have to just build, you have to just build the company. Um, the, the, there are companies, so let's see, uh, the founders of Stripe, they weren't a part of the PayPal mafia. Um, the founders of Airbnb, the founders of the Facebook, they got their first investment from Peter, but they weren't a part of, Mark wasn't a part of the, 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 the PayPal mafia, the Google founders. Who were they before they, they founded Google? They were no one. It was, they were just, they were two scientists, computer scientists at Stanford. Like, like you guys can just do it. You don't need to be a part of 
the, the idea that it's some exclusive cl club is is wrong. First of all, we're one. The PayPal mafia is like one fount of power. There are a million in Silicon Valley. There are billionaires looking to waste their money on stuff everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, you can go and find them. And if okay. you have a good idea, you will not have a hard time raising money. Okay. So would you still recommend um, entrepreneurs who have like great ideas to move out to Silicon Valley? Because we, we kind of touched it briefly about like how Silicon Valley has changed. I, I think it, it's just it, it, there's value to it, but it's it's a complicated. It's a complicated. There's like I think there's like a complicated calculus to it now that you have to figure out on your own. You shouldn't be doing something there that you can do somewhere else. If there's some reason you have to be there, I think that you just go you go there. But remember, you're also competing. It's not just your idea. You're competing for talent and. I don't know where else you will find harder competition for talent than there is no, I'm just going to say it, there's nowhere else in the world that you're going to find as, 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 uh, as formidable talent, uh, as formidable, as formidable comp competition for talent as you will in Silicon Valley. You're competing with Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Uber, um, Lyft, like, I mean, every, all of them, they're all there. So that's who you're fighting against. Amazon is pretty much the only game in town in Seattle and Microsoft, but come on. Um, and so it's like, that's it. They took over. They swallowed the city. That was the, they didn't have any competition. Could Amazon, would Amazon be as big as it is today if they were founded in San Francisco? Probably not. How would they have gotten all those engineers? I don't think they, I don't think they would have. Okay. So, like, what, why is Silicon Valley a hotspot again? Uh, because well, of this semiconductor or something? Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like decades and decades <sighs> of, of just, like, building on powerful network effects mm -hmm. that started with hard tech innovation then software innovation then company innovation venture capital was founded there pretty much as a new industry there were like multiple industries that were founded in that area <coughs> and then what happens is people move there for to, to participate in those things and then what happens is like you kind of look around and you realize the only people working in those things are right there and so then if you want to work in those things you have to move there uh but we've only just recently got to a place where things are more distributed so i mean you can build a company remotely like you can hire engineers anywhere in the world to work with you pretty much in real time and the cost of computing is really cheap and um you know there's talent everywhere and there are problems everywhere and there's money everywhere there are vcs everywhere so there's just not necessarily the same there's a tremendous gravity there it's really really valuable to be there but you don't have to be there so being in the hot spot of it all like meeting all these great minds and things like, what would you say, like, you know, what, what is, like, one tip that you can give one entrepreneur to, like, succeed on its way to become, the, you know, make the billion dollars? Um, let's say that you should just, this sounds so cheesy, but you should just listen to your heart and follow your heart um, I think that people who are working on things they don't love fail um, I think you really have to love what you're working on and I think that you have to follow that feeling like when you're excited about people online who are working on stuff and you're like oh that's cool you should email those people those people there's a reason that you feel that way it's your compass internally it's telling you to reach out to that person and we all have these weird walls up and these ideas of what we're supposed to be and what an entrepreneur is supposed to look like the truth is the entrepreneur, the next huge entrepreneur, the next Mark Zuckerberg is not going to look anything like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, not, maybe not, it won't be a young, it could be a young person or not. It's probably not going to be social networking. Um, it might be a distributed company. I, like it might not, it's, it's probably not going to be in, uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area. Like there are, 
it's we always think that we always try and model ourselves off of either people who already exist or people who have existed but the entire like thing that venture capitalists are looking for are people who have never existed before because that's where all of the value is i hope you enjoyed this episode big shout out to our sponsors accenture applied predictive technologies first derivatives plc and stake venture zero make sure to check out michael's podcast the anatomy of next and stay tuned in for more